Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Samsplaining Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Samsplaining the Science. This week, we're getting a little serious, but we need to be serious because our house is on fire. Let's get into it. Hey friends, I hope you're doing well. This week we're going to talk about climate change. This was another topic that was suggested to me by another one of my best friends. Um, And I just want to put out a friendly reminder that if you have a sciencey question that you want Sam Splain to you, you can head over to samsplainingscience.com slash ask and submit a question. Or you can also DM me on Instagram or Twitter at samsplainingsci. Cool. So let's get into it. This riveting topic, this exciting topic of climate change. I'm not sure if you keep up with climate science news, um, but at the end of February, the United Nations body for addressing climate change science, which is called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, they released a new report. This report is almost 4,000 pages, and um, a direct quote from the website, the report assesses the impacts of climate change, looking at ecosystems, biodiversity, and human communities at global and regional levels. It also reviews vulnerabilities and the capacities and limits of the natural world and human societies to adapt to climate change. Dr. Catherine Hayo, who is a Canadian climate scientist, said that if she had to give the report a nickname, she would call it, Your House is on Fire. Uh, (laughs) what exactly do you mean there, Dr. Catherine? Um, well, let's try to understand it a little better by asking some questions. So for today's episode, we have two questions. The first one is, how do we know the house is on fire? How do we smell the smoke? Or maybe we're looking at flames, right? Just what evidence do we have that tells us that our house is on fire? And the second question is, how do we put the fire out? Or maybe at this point, how do we just get out as safely as possible. So there are a few links, as always, in the episode notes of the sources that I will use. I will also link in the episode notes the most recent IPCC report. Like I said, the report itself is almost 4,000 pages. It's broken up into 18 chapters that cover things like terrestrial ecosystems, ocean ecosystems, water, food, cities, health and well-being in communities, poverty and sustainable development, chapters assessing impacts and risks by continent, um, decision-making options for managing risk, and climate-resilient development pathways. Did I read each of these chapters? Absolutely not. But I thought, oh, maybe I'll read just one or two chapters. Um, 
But if you know anything about me, you know that I am lazy. So when I opened a chapter and I saw it was a 200-page document, I said, no, thank you. And I opened the good old press release. (laughs) So most of the information that I'm getting is from another science communicator who communicated the science. And now I'm communicating their communication of the science. But the press release is also linked below if you just want to read it for yourself. But maybe stick around because, you know, or don't. Actually, do what you want. It's your life. (laughs) Okay. So since we have two questions for this episode, this episode's broken down into two parts. In the first part, we're going to talk about smelling the smoke. How do we know our house is on fire? And then the second part, we're going to talk about how do we get out as safely as possible? So let's dive in to smelling the smoke. I'm going to be honest with you. I know nothing about climate science. I've always like trusted climate scientists when they say like climate change is the result of human activities and, you know, we need to cut carbon emissions and we need to, you know, make sure that the global temperatures don't rise above two degrees C. They said these things and I was always just like, yeah, okay. I blindly believe them. Um, but now that I'm Sam explaining it to you, now I need to do my research and I, cause I need to have sources to back it up. Um, so below in the sources, um, in the episode description is a link to the environmental protection agency page or the EPA page that summarizes everything I'm going to be talking about with even more sources to back up the facts there. Um, so how do we know that climate change is happening? How do we know that our house is on fire? I think in some ways it's pretty obvious that there's been some severe weather events that have happened over the last few years, the last few decades, like hurricanes and wildfires and floods and all of these events that have been in many ways totally catastrophic. Um, but to be fair, I haven't been around that long, so maybe this is just like normal, you know, I'm very young. I've been around for less than 30 years. Okay. So how do I know that this isn't just like normal climate cycling of the planet? You know, like what do the climate scientists have to say about this? So from the EPA source that I linked below, I learned that there are normal or like natural causes to climate change, but there are also human causes to climate change. So natural causes are things like um, the sun's energy. Uh, Natural causes are things like volcanic eruptions um, or changes in the sun's path or orbit or the earth's path or orbit around the sun. The sun does not orbit the earth. Where, what year are we in? 1400? <laughs> Copernicus who? <laughs> Was Copernicus even in the 1400s? <laughs> Sam is Googling things that do not matter. Was it even Nicholas Copernicus that did it?
Oh, no, he was the one from heliocentrism. But he was in 1500s. So I wasn't that far off. Okay. This is not a history podcast, okay? In case you're new here, Sam will never explain history. And you can write that in pen. Write that in ink. I will never Sam explain history. Anyway, natural causes, <laughs> natural causes of climate change um, are things like changes in the Earth's path around the sun. Things like volcanoes, like volcanic eruptions, um, changes in the sun's energy. Human causes of climate change, um, the main human cause of climate change comes from large amounts of carbon dioxide or CO2 and other greenhouse gases. There are ways to explore and study each of these types of causes. So understanding how natural causes contribute to climate change and how human causes contribute to climate change. Um, it's like, for example, scientists can look at evidence on our earth, things like glacier sizes or ocean sediments, as well as looking at measures of gases in the atmosphere. Um, and looking at things like measures of global temperature. So let's focus on global temperature for a second, um, because that is the information that the EPA is giving to us in the source. <laughs> um, they have a graph in the source that shows the change in global temperature over time. The natural contributors that affect global temperature seem to be pretty cyclical throughout history, going back to the 1800s. And that kind of makes sense, right? Like the sun, I almost said the sun revolves around the earth again. Nicholas Copernicus, I am so sorry. Um, <laughs> the earth travels around the sun in a path that is not a perfect circle. So at some points the earth is closer to the sun. So maybe there's like more of the sun's energy heating up the earth. And then some points it's further away from the sun and maybe that it's cold. And there's like sort of a cycle there, you know, we know that it takes 365 days to get around the sun. So there's some sort of like predictable pattern there. Um, so, the natural drivers of global temperature change sort of go up and down, but they never really stray further than about half a degree Fahrenheit. But when we look at global temperatures over the last, let's say, 100 years since 1920, the observed global temperature has increased by almost two degrees. And since the natural drivers are relatively constant, right? They don't get hotter or colder than half a degree. It must be the human drivers that are contributing to this massive, relatively increase. Um, and scientists say that there's over a 95% chance that the changes that we're seeing in our global temperatures and our entire climate really um, are man-made. Okay, but that's sort of speculative, isn't it? Right? Like, prove it. <laughs> well, they did. They proved it in a few different ways. Um, I'm going to mention two of them. 
So they proved it not only by showing that greenhouse gas emission is directly tied to changing temperatures, but also by showing that natural causes of climate change were not correlated with changing temperatures. So let's start with the greenhouse gases, one of which, a greenhouse gas, is CO2 that I mentioned earlier, carbon dioxide. Yes, we as humans breathe out carbon dioxide, um, but CO2 is also a byproduct of burning fossil fuels or combustion. And those processes put out a lot more CO2 than our lungs do. (laughs) Um, Other greenhouse gases include methane gas and nitric oxide. And these are two other greenhouse gases that are also released when fossil fuels are burned. The EPA site shows that levels of these gases have increased over the last 2,000 years, but most dramatically within the last 100 or so years. Um, And the amount of gas in the atmosphere on this plot, if you're looking at the source, is measured in ppm or parts per million. And that's basically a measure, an indicator of how many gas molecules there are in 1 million air molecules. So let's just say there's like 10 parts per million, or CO2 is 10 parts per million. Um, that means that in a million air part, a million air molecules, 10 of those molecules are CO2. So maybe thinking about this and looking at this graph, you see it literally goes over the last 2,000 years, showing the change in gas over the last two millennium. So when I first saw this plot um, with my skeptical scientist brain, I said, how the hell did they know how much CO2 was in the air in the year 500? Like, did they just make it up? Did they just guess? Of course they didn't make it up. They used science, of course. And I'm going to tell you how, because I was very confused, and then I looked it up, and I learned something. So I'm going to Sam-splain to you what I Sam-splained to myself when I learned this. Um, (laughs) Geologists studied ice, ice glaciers in Antarctica and in Greenland. And there they thought of layers in this ice sort of like rings on a tree, right? So what they did was determine age of various ice layers, like going down into the ice, you get older. And then they dug through the ice and found little air bubbles that were enclosed, surrounded by the frozen water, And then they sampled the air in those bubbles to calculate the concentrations of gases that are in air bubbles in each layer of the ice. So granted, these measurements aren't exact. They're not going to get a sample of air from a layer of ice and say, oh yeah, the air in the year 387 was, you know, X amount of CO2 right? They don't know the exact date that their samples are coming from, but they can kind of guesstimate, if you will. Um, But it is a real shame, isn't it, that the people back in 387 didn't think to like 
I don't know, preserve a jar of their air for us. I mean, I get it that they weren't thinking about us, but it would have been nice if they did, you know. But whatever. These scientists figured it out. They said, let's check out the glaciers. Let's look at the glacier air bubbles and see what's going on. And it worked. Um, The measures might not be perfect. They might not be as accurate as measuring the fresh air right outside, but they give us the best indicator about what the air was made of thousands of years ago, literally 2000 years ago. I love science. Amazing. Now from this analysis of the air bubbles, scientists found that Levels of all three greenhouse gases, so the CO2, the methane, and the nitrous oxide, they all increased over the last 2,000 years, but very dramatically so after the year 1750. And those increases after 1750 are believed to be caused by human activities during and after the industrial era. I told you that I wasn't going to be Sam explaining history ever, um, but here I am, 12 minutes later, telling you about history. Who is she? <laughs> During the industrial era, this was a time when burning coal and other fossil fuels for energy was sort of discovered, developed, and it completely changed the way that humans lived their lives. We know that burning coal, burning gas, oil, etc., all these fossil fuels, they all release greenhouse gases like CO2, nitrous oxide, etc., because these are chemical reactions that are pretty well characterized and understood. So knowing that the increases in greenhouse gases came with the industrial era, and now better understanding the chemistry behind the combustion and the chemical reactions that are taking place when we burn fossil fuels, we can understand that once humans started using these energy resources, the amount of greenhouse gases in the air started to increase. And with this, the global temperatures began rising in ways well outside the normal or the expected range. And this is because greenhouse gas emissions lead to what's called the greenhouse effect. So I come from a family of farmers. This is a fun fact. Um, My brother's a farmer, sort of, (laughs) farmer-ish. If you've never been inside a greenhouse, what a greenhouse does is it just traps in all of the heat. So the sun kind of beats down on it, and it heats up the greenhouse, and then it sort of insulates the structure and it makes the air inside the greenhouse hotter than the air outside. And that's good for plants for some reason. I don't know. I'm not sampling plants today. Maybe another day. But the idea is that greenhouses sort of trap in heat and make the greenhouse hotter. And that's exactly what the greenhouse gases do. They lead to this greenhouse effect where heat from the sun or solar radiation gets absorbed and gets trapped into our atmosphere. And that leads to warming of the Earth's surface, which is leading to rising global temperatures. 
So besides looking at greenhouse gases over time, another way scientists proved that global warming was tied to man-made causes as opposed to natural causes was by monitoring the changes in the Earth's surface temperature and comparing them to natural changes like fluctuations in the sun's energy, which they call irradiance. And they found that since the year 1980, the global average surface temperature has steadily increased by almost one degree Celsius. However, the changes in the sun's energy has been steadily cyclical going up and then coming back down every 10 to 11 years or so. Don't ask me what that means. I don't really know. All I know is that it's a pattern, right? Every 10 years, it increases and decreases and increases and decreases. The point being that these changes don't line up, right? They're not correlated with the changes in the global temperature, which has just been a pretty steady increase over the last 40 years. They're not correlated, which suggests that the effect of the sun's energy on the Earth's surface and the the surface temperature is small. It's almost insignificant. So by process of elimination, these natural causes aren't causing dramatic increases in the Earth's temperature. It must be carbon emissions and greenhouse gases and the greenhouse effect. So with this, we conclude greenhouse gases, the greenhouse effect, all of these things are contributing to the rising global temperature. And greenhouse gases are emitted from burning fossil fuels. Burning fossil fuels contributes to climate change more than any other human activity. With this changing climate, being mostly at the hands of humans comes drastic changes, right? Changes in our weather, longer heat waves, longer droughts, bigger snowstorms, more devastating wildfires, catastrophic hurricanes, right? And it also affects our ecosystems, right? This changes the lands and the crops that lead to food and water insecurity. It leads to acid and chemicals in our bodies of water that become more dangerous for living things to survive in. Plants and fish and stuff that live in water are becoming endangered because the water quality um, is affected. Animals becoming endangered for extinction because their ecosystems are being destroyed by fires or other natural disasters. So there's just a lot of things that are being destroyed and they're all, the causes are all sort of traced back to burning fossil fuels. And these are things that we're seeing today, right? This is not, we're no longer talking about something that's happening, oh, 200 years from now, 100 years. These are things like, Severe weather events happen every year at this point, you know? So if you're denying that life as we know it on this beautiful planet of ours is changing right before our eyes, then you're not paying attention. 
our house is on fire, so what can we do about it? Queen of Transitions, that brings us to the second part of our episode called Putting Out the Fire. No, not putting out the fire. Maybe fireproofing the parts of our house that haven't completely been engulfed in flames yet. Because that's what the IPCC report um, that's linked in the episode notes kind of focuses on. We can no longer stop climate change because it's already happening. Um, And unless we ban fracking 10 years ago um, and we completely clean up our lives permanently forever, um, there will still be massive changes to our ecosystem because of climate change, because it's already happening. But what do we do about it, right? How do we keep the fire contained? How do we keep it so that maybe there's just some ash on the wall instead of completely incinerating the foundation of our home? Is that too dramatic? Am I the drama? Sorry if I'm being dramatic, but to quote Dr. Hosen Lee, the IPCC report recognizes the interdependence of climate, biodiversity, and people and integrates natural, social, and economic sciences. It emphasizes the urgency of immediate and more ambitious action to address climate risks. Half measures are no longer an option. End quote. So, if I may paraphrase Dr. Lee, um, it's basically go big or go home. Except it's actually more like go big or destroy our only home planet. Those are our options at this point. So let's get into some solutions. This is very like scary, right? And I know you're all dying to know. You're on the edge of your seats. How do we solve climate change? Lower your voice and I'll tell you. One point, one point that the IPCC report makes is that we can promote the cleaning of our air, promote the restoration of the health of our ecosystems through preservation. Preservation? preservation. Words are hard for me. Um, But if we preserve our land, like parks and, you know, oceans and just preserve the nature that's around us. What did I want to say? Hmm. This is candid. If we preserve the land around us, we can allow nature to do its thing. Nature has a capacity to absorb, store, use, get rid of carbon, right? Animals, we breathe in oxygen, breathe out CO2. Trees, grass, plants, etc. They breathe, quote unquote, they don't actually breathe, but They take in carbon dioxide, they take in CO2, and then they give off oxygen. 
So the more trees, grasslands, ecosystems that we save, the more plants that we have taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, which helps clear those nasty greenhouse gases that make our planet hotter. Healthy ecosystems can also provide clean water and food, which promotes life for all living things, humans included. So there are many benefits that can come from saving and strengthening our ecosystems. And the best part is that we can do this. This is easily achievable, right? We just need financial support and we need political support. So what are we going to do right now? We're going to call our reps, not right now, but when you can, please, we're going to call our reps. We're going to call our senators if you live in the U.S., and we're going to tell them to do everything that they can to protect our environment. And if they ask why, why is this so important? Well, we tell them that it's because the effect of climate change isn't just a direct impact on nature, right? It's related to things that the government has control over and things that the government is responsible for like the unsustainable use of natural resources, like urbanization, a.k.a. paving paradise to put up a parking lot. It includes social inequities, because the people who will undoubtedly be affected by climate disasters the most are more often people who are of lower-income communities, It's about damages from severe weather events that the government is probably going to have to pay for eventually. The list can go on and on and on. This stuff matters, and it matters now, so we have to remind our government of that, and we have to be vocal about it. You might be saying, couldn't the private sector help too? Yes, absolutely, but I don't have any pull in the private sector. If you do, let me know. Hit me up. But until then, all I know is that I can write and call my representative, so that's where I'll start. And I hope that you will too. This action of protecting and preserving our ecosystems will help us reduce future climate risks and improve people's lives. As of right now, the climate levels and the warming levels that we're currently at This solution of preserving ecosystems will be very difficult, and if it works, it will take a long time to matter, to make an effect. It will be even more difficult if we let global temperatures continue to rise another 1.5 degrees Celsius, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And some areas of our planet will be irreversibly damaged and it will be impossible to do this preservation technique once global warming increases by two degrees celsius 3.6 degrees fahrenheit so that half a degree celsius is literally life and death for people the solutions outlined in this 4,000 page report stress the urgency for action, but they also prioritize the equity and justice 
for those who are at higher risk or highest risk for losing everything. For those high, for those at highest risk of seeing the irreversible damage of climate change. As Hans Otto Portner says, the scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and the health of the planet. Any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. That's pretty freaking scary, right? Like, I don't know, like, maybe this is just not something that people are reading. Like, maybe people don't see this. But it's very unnerving. It's very scary. <laughs> um, but the whole point of this is not to really scare you. I mean, maybe it is to scare you a little bit, but it's to say, we can fix this. Why aren't we fixing this? <laughs> All right, let's not, let's not focus on the doom. Let's talk about another point in the report that Sorry, I didn't mean to crack my knuckles in the microphone. That was rude. Excuse me. <laughs> but let's talk about another point of the report um, that focused on solutions regarding infrastructure. What things can we build sustainably, of course, that can help us withstand the effects of climate change that we've already started to see? Our investment in preserving ecosystems won't change the trajectory of climate devastation overnight. Um, but maybe there are things that we can build over the course of a few years that will help us, help humanity, withstand some of the severe weather events that are going to occur, for example. So within the infrastructure discussion, they focused on a few things, but one of which was cities, um, because more than half of the world's population lives in cities. I did not know that, but they said it, so I'm going to believe it. <laughs> um, but they had some concerns when thinking about cities, one of which was the health, lives, and livelihoods of people, I mean, not just in cities, all over the world, but they talked about the issues in regard to people who live in cities, particularly those who are in poverty and who are unemployed. They also had concern for property and infrastructure, including things like energy systems and transportation systems. These concerns, both the livelihood of human beings and the, you know, systems of infrastructure, they are all negatively impacted by the weather events that we see, the heat waves, the storms, the flooding. Um, you know, like think of people who are like homeless on the street during a heat wave where it's over a hundred degrees for three days in a row. That's dangerous for their health. They could have serious health issues because of that, you know, and if that's going to become a regular thing, that's going to be a repeating health issue for people who don't have homes to go into to cool off, right? 
Things like flooding in transportation systems. Just last summer, there were like two flash floods in New York City that completely flooded subway stations. People were swimming. I can't even think about it. Swimming through the subway platform. That was last year. This is happening already, right? Not even to mention the slow changing things, the rising sea levels, you know? Right now there is a New York City. Will there be a New York City in 400 years if the sea levels keep rising, you know? With all of these concerns that will probably keep me up tonight and maybe tomorrow too, um, the IPCC suggests that cities take advantage of the the opportunities, the opportunities, (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> the opportunities for climate action. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say that again just in case I want to cut it out, but I think it's kind of funny I might leave it in. Okay. But with all of these concerns, the IPCC suggests that cities take advantage of the opportunities for climate action. With the help of indigenous and local knowledge of the land and the area and the ecosystems that exist in those cities naturally, cities should preserve the land whenever possible, right? The first point that we talked about in this section. But also, they should invest in building greener buildings using renewable energy. Renewable energy that will cut greenhouse gas emissions, which will cut the contributions to the greenhouse effect, which will slow down the rate at which we're warming our planet. They should generate reliable supplies of clean water. They should make sustainable transport systems that can connect urban and rural areas, and that can lead to a better, more inclusive, more connected, and more fair society. The key here that they mention in the report is who is included in these conversations. Because in the past, urbanization has hurt many populations, including indigenous populations, including people who are of lower income. So if everyone is included in these discussions, and if everyone's voice is heard in these conversations, we can prevent putting people's lives at risk, and we can preserve nature as much as possible, we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and we can build a greener, more inclusive, brighter future. And that sounds nice to me. So that was a nice place to end, um, but I'm not ending yet. <laughs> so just that feeling of optimism that you have, just hold on to it for a second. Um, but I'm going to close out this episode like I did the last one with a little stream of consciousness. I don't know, is that like something that's enjoyable? Maybe at this point you're like, is she going to shut up or what? I will. Put me on 2x speed, I'll shut up sooner. You know, that's how podcasts work. Um, I do just want to acknowledge there are a lot of people who are doing things to help the environment on an individual level, right? People are recycling and carpooling, using public transit. Some people go vegan or vegetarian, right, and, like, cut out red meats because the uh, the meat industry is a very big uh, contributor of greenhouse gas emission. 
And that's great. That's a really, all, all of those are really great examples of how we can take care of our planet. But respectfully, we need to do more than that. We're way past that. As I mentioned, we need to appeal to our lawmakers in the U.S. We need to urge them to pass legislation that puts in place some or all of the action items that are mentioned in the IPCC report. Another point I wanted to talk about that I heard someone say, and I forget who it was, it might have been like Bill Nye, but science is not, no, how do I say this? Science must be political, but it cannot, should not be partisan, right? Science needs to inform our policies, but it shouldn't be something that divides us. Regardless of how you vote, we share this planet with one another. We share this planet with every single person, not even just within our own countries, right? With all other countries on the planet, we share this planet. Every animal, every plant, every living thing, regardless of where they're from, we inhabit the earth just like they do. So we should all feel maybe some inclination, some duty to help solve this crisis that is attacking our planet, right? We should help each other save this beautiful planet, if not for ourselves and for our children, then for beautiful mama nature, who we love so much, don't we? Don't you ever like go outside and touch grass and you're like, wow, I am so small compared to this entire planet. And then you can think like, wow, what am I doing for her, this beautiful planet that I live on? Maybe that'll motivate you. That's your homework for this week. Go outside and touch some grass and appreciate the planet that you live on right now. And try to think of ways that you can help save her. And I'll give you a, t- a suggestion. Go call your legislators and tell them to help her. If you're in the U.S., please please, please contact your senators and your representatives and your local electors too. As Jane Goodall says, think globally, act locally. Thank you, Dr. Jane. We love you. Um, But actually, in the U.S., midterm elections are this year. Vote for people who make climate change a priority because this is a priority, or it should be. As they say, there is no planet B. So we have to respect planet A. This one. I guess it makes sense when you see it because like when they say there is no planet B, like P-L-A-N is like capitalized. You know, it's like obvious. It's like a play on plan B, plan A, plan B. There's no plan it B. Did that joke land? I don't know. Anyway, on that bright note, that's all for this week. (laughs) Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Sam Sci. Connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. 
You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam Splain to you, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.